everyone, and I want to give you a big Dead to Rights welcome to our 75th episode. We're kicking off our fourth season of Dead to Rights, the video podcast for the crime genre industry. And I'm your host, Donna Carrick. I hope you'll settle in with us and uh, stay for a while, because today we're bringing you an interview with Joan O'Callaghan, author of Colors of Canada, Amazing Days, George, For Elise, and a number of other great titles, including many award-winning and runner-up short stories. So Joan is a really terrific writer, and she's also a teacher of English teachers at OISE U of T. So you're going to really enjoy hearing what she's got to say. She's got a, a wealth of knowledge about our industry, and um, she's always happy to share it, in addition to being a really good friend of mine. So please enjoy the interview with her and stay for it. Well, I hope that you're all coping all right with this COVID situation. It's now getting late into the season. You know, we're now into June, cresting into July, and um, still not a real end in sight, although things do seem to be opening up quite a bit. I hope that uh, you've been able to cope all right and that your family have all been well. And um, so I'm happy to bring you this interview with Joan O'Callaghan. Please give her a big Dead to Rights, welcome. Good morning, Joan, and welcome to Dead to Rights. Thank you. How are you? Here? Oh, you do. Excellent. I just finished mine. Sorry. <laughs> I'd love to be <laughs> having a coffee with you, but I'm such an early bird. I've already had mine. <laughs> well, I have to give you a heads up. The cat is here. He may very well jump into my lap. Well, that's quite all right if he does. He can say hello to our listeners. Oh, yeah. that's good because he does, um, he, likes, he likes to participate. Everyone, Joan O'Callaghan is a teacher at Boise, and um, I believe you teach English teachers, is that right? That's correct. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, um, I train high school English teachers. Um, these are people who have finished their, um, their university degrees uh, and who now are into the professional training program. And I also teach the elementary, the, um, the junior intermediate. They're basically grade six, seven, eight. It's a half course. Um, it's a specialty for them. And uh, those are the two courses I teach, very hands-on. So I don't know what's going to happen, you know, when, uh, when classes resume in the fall. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. I've been yeah. for a long time. I taught at Queens before I came to OISE. Mm -hmm. And before that, I was a high school English teacher myself. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much. Not that you need to show any credentials or anything, but in my intro, I was uh, I was talking about the fact that you were teaching at Oise, and so that's why I wanted to get it straight from you exactly what that entails. But um, I also wanted to ask you a little bit about your story for a grave diagnosis titled Napoleon's Nose, which is a really clever story. Without giving too much away, can you tell us a little bit about your character and the plot of that story? Which story are we talking about? Uh, Napoleon's Nose. Oh, Napoleon's Nose, sorry, yeah. Um, the main character, well, there are two main characters, one of whom is a cat, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, I don't want to say too much more. And then we also have a woman um, who is basically locked into an unhappy marriage. Um, she's a, an English teacher, which is something that I'm familiar with. Um, and she befriends a cat. Mm -hmm. um, a stray whom she's found sheltering in her garden during a rainstorm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that as the story progresses, um, she discovers, she actually, she ends up um, with an illness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she discovers that she really has no recourse. Nobody seems to want to help her, except for one rather strange young man who turns up at the door. Okay. okay. We should probably leave it there because we don't want to give away too much. No, we don't want to give away too much. I've enjoyed the story several times already. So I know where it goes from there and I don't want to give away too much. No. no. You've got a a number of stories that um, feature teachers and I'm thinking in particular of Henri. Do you recall that story? What was the title? That was in um, Sugar and Spice. Sugar and spice. That's, that's right. Yes, Henri. Yes, Henri was an was a French teacher actually, mm-hmm. and, and was an English teacher in there as well. Mm-hmm. That's the story that was published in thirteen. Yes, yes. Yeah. I really like that because it was um, it had an interesting play on the whole innocence of young girls, school age girls, and uh, their so called innocence. Let's say and that actually had its roots in a true story okay and it was a former student of mine was telling me um, and then there were some changes i obviously i altered the story somewhat yes yes but the, the original story the the true story the real story featured a, a group of girls in grade eight who came from you know fairly privileged families um, and who were a problem behaviorally in the school a number of teachers had uh, spoken uh, to the parents about it, and the parents' attitude was just, well, oh, they're just kids being kids, mm-hmm. and nothing was done about it. And the school then hired a French teacher, a quite uh, an attractive young man from Quebec, mm-hmm. and the girls swarmed him in the schoolyard mm-hmm. one day and <laughs> stuck their hands down his pants. And the man was, was, he was horrified. He quit on the spot. Mm-hmm. And that was that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know my, my former student and I had a number of discussions in terms of uh, who was responsible here and what should happen or what should have happened and yeah. uh, this type of thing. But that's where the idea came from. Mm-hmm. And the thing of it is, you and I were young girls once. Yes. And in my case, a while ago, yours not me. In my case, even longer ago. <laughs> Oh, we're going to be honest, are we? <laughs> we are going to be very honest here. Um, and I, do recall, I do recall schoolgirl crushes on teachers. I do. And, um, you know, with decency involved, they're quite harmless, you know, as long as there's no malice. But um, you just can't rely on the absence of malice, you know? Well, in this case, I think that um, the parents should have been called in. I, if I had been in the school, I would have also called the police because, in fact, this was sexual harassment. Yes, it was. Yes, and, I mean, they would not have been charged because they were, like, 13 years old, but they would have gotten a very stern warning, and I think it would have sent a message to parents and to the kids mm-hmm. that there are lines you do not cross. Yes, exactly, exactly. And messing with someone's entire career and livelihood. Yeah, well, I don't know yeah. what happened to him after that. I, I'm assuming he went back to Quebec, and whether he actually returned to the classroom is, is anybody's yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard to say, isn't it? But, uh, I mean, it would give him quite a jolt, I'm sure, if nothing else, you know? 
Yes. Um, so that was a really interesting story. Sugar and Spice. If, if anyone is out there, look it up. And please, please watch for Napoleon's Nose to come out in a grave diagnosis in the fall. I'm really looking forward to presenting that. It's a terrific story. And I can't say enough about it, really. Now, I want to talk to you about what you're currently working on, because I believe you're working on the second YA, um, Lighthearted Mystery in a series. It's, I, I wouldn't really call it a caper, it's, um, but I would call it maybe an adventure YA mystery. Um, is that maybe a good description for it? I think it is, yes. Um, in this group, we have, well, in this case, we have a group of teenagers, high school students, um, and they, two of them, or three of them, the girls, the females, are members of the school band, and also one of the males. And so the band travels, which gets them into different places. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other two are more involved with sports. Uh, my protagonist, the boyfriend, is, um, is involved in sports. And uh, one of the other male characters gets involved, not um, actively, but basically manages the teams and such and gets to travel as well. He's more of a nerd. Mm -hmm. uh, but they do travel. And uh, I said, occasionally, the teams on the band will travel together to save money on the buses. And in this particular case, it's just the school band. They have won a competition, and their prize is an all-expenses-paid trip to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. It's not, however, without um, certain requirements. They are performing. Um, they're going to be doing a, a jazz concert on board one of the stern wheelers that you find on the Mississippi, the jazz cruise. Mm -hmm. um, but they get themselves into trouble very quickly on. Just quite innocently, they are um, shopping for souvenirs. Mm -hmm. My character buys a Grigri bag in a souvenir shop mm -hmm. for um, her boyfriend. And tell us what a Grigri bag is. Well, Grigri is, it's a voodoo charm. It's a little bag and it has all manner of things in it depending on what you want. Usually it's ground up roots and sometimes there are crystals and other things like that. And they are supposed to bring the bearer whatever it is that they want. In this case, it's a love charm. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and so the bag is red, but if you get one in a green bag, maybe you're looking for money. Um, and so this is what they, but this one is, is uh, what she buys is basically for the tourists, except that it inadvertently gets switched with the real one. Okay. And the person who is the owner of the real bag wants it back. Mm -hmm. And there, and of course, uh, all sorts of things happen. And uh, yeah. among other things, the bag that she has, which is the real Grigri, disappears. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's not the man who wanted it who's, who's got it. And now you've had a fascination with New Orleans for quite a while. Yes, I love New Orleans. As a, my ex-husband would have said, New Orleans, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love New Orleans. I've been there a few times. Yes, yes, because I recall you used to, years ago, write quite extensively about New Orleans and a mystery you were working on. Yes, and I did. I, my first full-length adult mystery is set uh, largely in New Orleans. Tell us what draws you. It's so many things about that city. It's the history is fascinating. Uh, the culture. I mean, New Orleans has a distinct culture in terms of music, in terms of art, in terms of food. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the area around it, as, as you know, Donna, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm fascinated by alligators. Yes. And you have the bayous around the city. Mm -hmm. 
uh, with alligators in them. And so the wildlife too, um, that is the animal wildlife, as opposed to the night wildlife, <laughs> is also a draw. I was there with my sister a few summers ago, and we just had a wonderful time. We just, you know, went everywhere. We took and the food. Let's not forget the food. The oh, well, that's what, yeah. The food is to be part of the culture. That's just, and we certainly ate very well. Mm -hmm. uh, we, you know, muffalettas and uh, what else? Oh, God, I can't remember everything. We had certainly pralines and, um, mm -hmm. oh, my. <laughs> The food was incredible. Even the word Cajun. Yes. Word Cajun is uh, quite a Canadian word. It comes yes, it is. from Acadian, which is where I'm from, Acadia. And uh, these were the people who were forced out of Canada because they didn't swear allegiance That's to the right. flag. And um, as my ex husband used to say, we shipped them to heaven because uh, they ended up in, in the area around New Orleans and um, in the bayou, largely, the Cajun yes. population landed. And uh, as he said, you know, when he grew up, they could literally walk out of their house and have food. Yes, exactly. They lived in the bayous. They still do. Mm -hmm. um, they intermarried with the, the local people, the Spanish, like the, the Cajun, if you listen to the language, it's basically French, but there are also, there's Spanish mixed in there, and it, it's not the easiest thing to understand. But they have their own music. They have their own, uh, they have a culture all their own. Yes, yes. And their own food. Too. They eat alligator meat. Okay, yes, yes. I always remember a song that was popular when I was very young called Amos Moses. And uh, I'm not going to get into the silly lyrics of it. It was very serious. Very silly. Amos Moses was a Cajun. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to look up those lyrics, Amos Moses was a Cajun. Okay. And, uh, you'll find the silly lyrics after we're done talking and you'll know what I mean. <laughs> well, I remember when I was uh, in my teens, there was a song that was well, not terribly popular, but it certainly was, was one we listened to in Cajun French called um, Allons Danser Colinda, mm -hmm. which is, uh, means, you know, come and dance Colinda, you know, while your mother isn't looking and, and this type of thing. And it, it, <laughs> I it, like it. It's a nice beat to it. Yes, yes. Oh, to be that young. <laughs> now, tell us a little bit about the first book in this uh, YA series. Well, the first book has the group traveling to Austria. That's the cockroach caper. Mm -hmm. And we have our, again, this is, this is one of those occasions when you have the team, the, the ski team is going to an international competition, and the band is going to play a series of concerts in a very small town in the Austrian Alps. And uh, my main character, Cindy, gets into an altercation on the plane, through no fault of her own, with um, a, a German woman who was on the plane. Who is very comical. Tell us a little bit about her. Oh, Frau Trottel? Yes. Well, yeah. Frau Trottel, <laughs> she's not a very pleasant person to begin with. No. And she comes down, this is actually also based on a, a true story. She comes down the aisle um, as the plane is uh, boarding and inadvertently, well, no, she, just, she quite deliberately sits on Cindy. She thinks that Cindy is sitting in her seat. Mm -hmm. And even though Cindy pulls out her boarding pass to show her that she's in the right place, she just ignores her and uh -huh. sit on her. 
mm. all her friends film it. You know, come the cell phones, as you know how it is with kids. Of course, because everybody's filming everything on planes now. Exactly. And eventually, oh, right now, yeah. but <laughs> eventually they get the attention of the flight attendant who comes down and uh, escorts the lady to her own uh, her own seat. But uh, it turns out that the woman is on her way to meet her husband uh, at a convention which is also taking place at the same in the same hotel in the Oscar announced and this woman disappears and because of what happened on the plane Cindy gets uh, I won't say she gets blamed for it but they certainly look on her with suspicion because she's they know that she's had some sort of an altercation with her they don't know what else for her. they have questions for her exactly and of course what complicates things is there seems to be an infestation of cockroaches in this hotel Oh, okay. And nobody knows why or where, but there's, they, they discovered that there's some peculiarities about these cockroaches. Mm -hmm. And of course, the cockroaches are tied in with, uh, with the woman's okay. disappearance. Okay, so there is something going on there and we yes. won't reveal it. Yes. 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 Well, I, had to do I, a loved, I loved that. Uh, it was a, a novella length, young adult. Yes. And I really enjoyed it. It was quite, oh. quite a hoot to read through. <laughs> Something happens on every page. Now, I promised our listeners that you would impart some creative writing tips because you're a great resource for me and always have been. Um, you're the first reader of many of my works. And uh, what can you tell our listeners about creating a good story in the mystery genre in particular? But writing a good story? Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, well, I think you need to have some kind of inspiration um, I think, I think first of all, you need to be, I always say that a writer is a collector of stories. Mm -hmm. And I think, I love to listen to people when they talk. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of my ideas will come from. Mm -hmm. Is just hearing a story. Somebody says, oh, you know, something happened or, you know, I read about this or, and I'll say, oh, there's a plot. Mm -hmm. There's a plot. Mm -hmm. And then it's a question of massaging that plot. How can I make it work for me? How can I make it work if, if you're working on a series? And if you are doing young adults, by the way, kids love series. Then how can I, you know, fit this in with my series? Mm -hmm. I heard a good story the other night. My brother-in-law and my nephew are both lawyers. They specialize in estate litigation, which is people fighting over wills. Right. And... My brother-in-law says, oh, he wouldn't believe what happened to me today. He's telling me this on the phone. <laughs> and I listened and I thought to myself, bingo, there's book number three. <laughs> and there's this, you know, and I, I began to take shape right away. Uh, but I think you need a certain discipline. I mean, one of the good things about the pandemic, if, if I, you know, there is anything good about it, is that I am home. And it's given me an opportunity to write. And it's forced me to get into a routine. Mm -hmm. And so I am managing to get a fair bit done. And it gets easier because as you work, as I say, in a series, you know your characters better. Mm -hmm. You kind of live with them. Yes, yes. And you do need to know your characters yes. in any work of fiction, but in particular in a series. In yes. particular in a series. You've got to know them inside and out, even if you don't draw out all those elements for your readers, you've still got to know them. You've got to have them in your head. They've got to have rooms in your head. That, you know. Exactly. And they have characters and they have personalities and they also have um, speech patterns, which are unique to them. 
Yes, yes. Tell us a little bit about speech patterns because you get into that whenever you sat in different places. I tend to use a lot of dialogue mm -hmm. when I'm writing and I'm not sure where that comes from. Maybe because my other teaching subject was drama. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. But um, you get to, I mean, my one, my main character, Cindy, can be fairly sarcastic. Mm -hmm. um, her friend Beth is sort of the more, the, the most mature of the group. And so she'll often be the one who says, oh, we shouldn't do that. You know, that's dangerous. That's, you know, we're going to get in trouble. She's the one who sort of puts the brakes on the rest of them. Right. Amy is, is fun, but she's, she's not, she's not as bright as the others. Mm -hmm. And so she's the one who often asks a lot of questions or doesn't really understand something. Mm -hmm. And then you have Theodore, of course, who's a nerd. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he won't let any, you know, he, he goes by Theodore or Theo. We're not going to talk too much about him because he tends to be pivotal to the plot. Yes, he is. But yeah. you, you know who he is because he is very nerdy. Mm -hmm. Harry is somewhat nerdy and he likes to needle Cindy. Mm -hmm. And of course, Matt is the boyfriend. And he's, um, you know, they're sports oriented, and, but he's, he's pretty sharp also. So they've, they've all got their distinct personalities. You've got a great cast of characters that you're working with, really. And I, I can't wait to see even more develop in the series. I know you're going to be sending me something to read. Before yes, I will. This is from my current one, which is um, the Parlangua puzzle. Yes, yes. And this is for our listeners now. Uh, Joan and I have known each other a very long time. And we do share what we're working on with each other on an ongoing yes. basis. It's really important for you, if you're a new writer out there, to get somebody you trust, somebody with a good eye, preferably, and uh, somebody that wants you to do well, not somebody who's going to crush your soul. <laughs> That's correct. No, it's absolutely true. Because when you're working on something, uh, it's, I imagine it's very much like having a child. And when you get somebody to read what you're working on, it's like letting that child out into the world for the first time. And you feel very protective and you're worried, are people going to like my child? Are people, yes. you know, and so you, you, yeah, you have to treat a, write, a new writer, I think, particularly. Um, I won't say with kid gloves, I don't mean it to come across that way, but I think you have to be gentle with them. Yes, yes. Gentle and encouraging, even yes. while you're, you're uh, making contributions to their work, you know? Yes. And there's it's nothing wrong with making contributions, but we're not in the business of tearing down fellow artists of any No, way. no, we should not do that, although no. it does happen. It does happen. It absolutely does. And that's why I say, if you're not already part of a writer's group, try to become part of a writer's group or at least get a good friend. Um, you know what kind of a writer's group you're in? Yes. Um, I know that uh, before I was in one writer's group, before I joined it, there had been somebody there. I couldn't get into the group until she left because they were very strict about the members. Mm -hmm. But this particular individual was very destructive to other, I heard about it after, to other people in the group. They were very happy when she finally decided to leave. Okay, okay, yes, yes. So that's something to be avoided. If you feel like somebody is tearing your work down, just run, don't walk. Well, I think one of the things I learned from teaching, because writing is, is such a big part of the English curriculum, and yes, it's the encouraging thing, um, but you have to also respect the writer's integrity. And that is that only the writer really knows what's going on in the story. They, they have the, the story in their head. Yeah. You don't. And so you might be critical of something, but um, it may not 
it may be something that is critical to what goes on later. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the writer should be very careful. I mean, when I get criticism from my members of my writing group, mm-hmm. I take it and I look at it, I, I think about it quite seriously. And I have to decide what is relevant to what I am doing yes. to my overall, the overall picture in my head and what is not. That's right. And I think this is true in any of the arts. You've got to have the strength of commitment to your art that you bring with it so that you're not rejecting any critique out of hand, but at the same time, you weigh it against what you know about your own work. That's right. That strength, that responsibility for that strength has to lie with you as the artist or the writer. Um, It really does. And it leads me to something else. I talk often to writers and in particular new writers, but I want to just speak to editors for a moment now. If you're working for a major newspaper, you know what your, what your, um, I want to say what your mission is. Yeah. You know what your mission is, and you know that it's to pare down the words, it's to get to the heart of the story quickly, right. never bury the lead, as they say, mm-hmm. always get the who, what, when, where, and why down really quickly, really fast. But if you're an editor in the creative fiction field, you know your approach has to be quite different. We cannot have our voices altered. No. This is something Joan and I have talked about many times over the years. Um, the writer's voice can only develop if it's allowed to develop. And, um, yes. Yes. you know, as the editor, you're in the position of you can work on the story, you can do a substantive edit, or you can do a copy edit or a line edit. There are many different types of editors, but none of them should entail changing the author's voice. No, no. You. This is what I go back to the integrity of the writer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if as a writer, you've got an editor that you feel is changing your voice, don't get mad. Just find a different editor. Try and talk to them. Yes. And just, you know, point out what is troubling to you Mm -hmm. and ask, how can we make this better without altering my voice? Yes. Yes, exactly. And that, again, it takes a strength of character. And uh, as people who have worked our whole lives, both Joan in, in education and myself in business, it, it helps you. It helps you build that inner strength. Yes, it does. Whereas people who are artists right from the get-go, and that's their whole life, I think you have to know how to work with people. Yes, you really do. You really yeah. do. So as artists, see it as a business. Bring yourself to it as a business, as writers, and um, have, have a commitment to your work. Yeah, that would be what I would say. Anyway, sorry, Joan. I <laughs> oh, no, no, that's quite all right. A little bit there, but that was something I'd been meaning to say a while, and you and I had talked about it many times. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now tell us about Sylvester and how he helps your work. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I was you almost met Sylvester a minute ago. He was prowling around here on the desk. Uh, usually, he um, when I'm on a Zoom call, he likes to get into my lap, and he, you know, you'll see him in the picture instead of me. But he, he's decided to go off and do something else. Sylvester is my cat. He's, he's nine years old. Um, <laughs> he's a character, mm-hmm. but yes, he's. Um, I love animals, and I think that's something that um, that comes up also in my writing. Yes, you volunteer. I'm going to stop you there because you yeah. say about you love animals, but you tend to be very modest. You actually volunteer for the uh, local community society and you create lovely blankets for animals. Tell us about both of those things. Well, I've wanted to work at an animal shelter for a long time. 
And the Humane Society has a lot of volunteers and it was a while before they actually had an opening for me. So I came on board, um, oh, about a year and a half ago. And I work primarily with the cats. I'm a volunteer and we work in the area of feline enrichment, which means basically socializing the, the cats so that they can be adopted, getting them used to human interaction, playing with them, brushing them, uh, this sort of thing. Um, some of the volunteers who have had additional training will work with the more difficult cats. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's so exciting. I, I can't tell you how excited I get when a cat gets adopted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so wonderful because a shelter is not a place for, for them. They, you know, even though they're well looked after and they're, they, they need to be in a home with people who love them. Yes. And I do that. I also help out with uh, the education program. No surprises there. Mm -hmm. um, and my job will be very much the same as the educational coordinator when they call me in and that is we'll uh, take I'll take a group through on a tour and we have different things that the students do we have um, a wonderful program it's called a reading buddies program mm -hmm. the children or the teenagers whoever is coming through they bring a book with them mm -hmm. and we pair them up with the dog and they read to the dog Lovely. It's yeah. wonderful because really for the dog, it's the dog gets used to the human voice. Mm -hmm. And the student, the child or the teenager gets to read to a non-critical audience. Yes. But yeah. sometimes we get very funny things um, happening. I had a group that was doing their reading buddies with the dogs. One little girl was very unhappy. She plucked my sleeve as I came past and she says, the dog isn't paying attention. Oh no. <laughs> I don't quite what to say. And I, so I looked, I said, well, maybe, maybe he doesn't like Harry Potter, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I do that. And so yes, that's an inspiration too. I really um, enjoy doing that. And Donna, you and I are both knitters and I've been sitting here eyeing that sweater you're wearing. Oh, but I didn't knit this one, but thank you. <laughs> you did a wonderful, wonderful. I should have worn what I knitted. I should have worn what I knitted for our, for our chat. Beautifully. I mean, you're just going to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really awestruck by, by the sweaters and the things that you do produce. But yes, I have a, a huge sack full of wool here, yarn that people have uh, discarded or that I picked up on sale or that um, ends from uh, other projects. And I knit little blankets. Mm -hmm. that I bring to the Humane Society. The animals don't care if a stitch is, you know, you've missed a stitch somewhere or if the colors are a little bit not quite aligned. Um, but it's something really that's important for them. I, I ran across um, a website called um, the Snuggles Project, home, or sorry, um, Hugs for Homeless Animals. Mm -hmm. And they say that for an animal that has been abandoned, that has been injured, that is ill, uh, that has been abused, that this is a little blanket like that is a source of comfort. Yes, yes. So I that, know. That's what I like to do. And I know that if anybody out there is a knitter and is wondering what to do with this yarn, that the Humane Society is very grateful. Yes, and they know when something belongs to them. I mean, Joan yeah. and I are both animal lovers. We've got uh, two dogs and a cat in our little crazy house mm -hmm. here. And, um, each of these, both dogs and the cat, know when something is for them. When we give them a little gift at Christmas time and they open that gift, 
they know that's theirs. They'll carry it around for months. Yes. That one belongs to them. And it's true with the little blankets too. Just Absolutely. Something that somebody gave to them. And believe me, they know it's not lost on them. No, no, they love So I work animals into my stories. Yes. Yes, you do. Yeah. There is uh, a dog that features in the cockroach caper. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, without giving too much away, he's a great big burly St. Bernard. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you how he works in. That'd be a mystery. Yes. Well, Joan, it's really been wonderful talking to you today. And uh, I hope that you'd continue on and send me something soon to read. I will do that, Donna. Always do it. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Stay on the line with me and thank you again for joining us. Okay, thank you. I want to thank Joan O'Callaghan for joining us today on Dead to Rights, the podcast video. If you are an author in the crime genre industry and would like to be interviewed for Dead to Rights, please contact me at Publishing at rogers.com and be sure to say Dead to Rights interview in the subject line so that I'm watching for your email. Also, I want to remind you that we have a new anthology coming out in the fall, and we're now getting close to that, titled A Grave Diagnosis, coming out from Carrick Publishing. And we've got just a wealth of wonderful stories in it, including a little number titled Napoleon's Nose by our own Joan O'Callaghan. So watch for that to come out in the fall. That's going to be great fun. And our thanks, as always, to Ted Carrick for the wonderful theme song, eyes of gold. And with that song, I will bid you farewell and hope to see you all next week. Dusty road, man alone. His vital signs go on hold. And I don't know what you've been told. But the years have turned my gold. And I told you what you told me. We'd never be in the same boat for free, yet it rides, let it rot.